everybody. I'm Drew McKenna, and welcome to our podcast, Grafted Branches. Thank you for joining us as we keep exploring Jesus in his world of the first century Israel. With me, as always, is my special, beautiful, and only wife, Deborah. <laughs> Hello, and thank you for joining us again today. And by the way, Drew, I hope I'm your only wife. In our last podcast, we talked about the story of the healing of a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And we saw how Jesus applied the Hebrew concept of preserving life called pekuach nefesh. And Jesus not only applied this concept of uh, pekuach nefesh in his teaching, he expanded it. You know, saving a life isn't just preventing a death. He teaches us that improving the quality of life is also saving a life. We need to understand Jesus was not just proclaiming anything new. Uh, Long before uh, his time, Jewish sages had recognized that great importance Torah places on human life. They organized and prioritized these principles, often through great debate. What I find interesting is how Jesus chose to teach this idea did it on the Sabbath without violating any of the strict Sabbath traditions. There's one question we seem to never explore, and that is, why did he choose the Sabbath? I think the best answer is because of the importance of the day. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between God and Israel forever. It is a day Israel is to remember that God is the creator of all creation. Creation did not create itself. Then he rested from his creative activities on the seventh day. God created the Sabbath for Israel to rest from all their creative activities on the seventh day each week. As Israel remembered the Sabbath each week, they were reminded of the covenant made with God, how as his treasured possession they are both a people set apart from and a light to the nations. The Sabbath was never meant to be a burden but a joy. Jesus reminds them of that when he said, The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. What better day than on the Sabbath to preserve life? You know, I agree. A healing that brings life to someone, while no small thing, on any other day just doesn't have as big an impact. Not only was a person's life saved, Jesus used this opportunity to teach his listeners something greater about God. Taking care of life goes beyond just saving someone from dying. In God's instructions to Adam and Eve, it is clear taking care of all life is what humans are told to do. It seems that the humane treatment of animals, especially domestic ones, was a very important part of the culture in the first century. And that takes us to today's teaching by Jesus. Let's go to Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. We see Jesus teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And he makes full use of what we call a teaching opportunity. Let me read the passage. Quote, And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, 
There are six days in which the work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead them away to water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? His words put to shame all those who disagreed with him, but everyone else in the crowd was rejoicing over all the wondrous deeds he had done. What a great passage. You know, there's so much contained in such few words. So let's go and try to unpack it for our listeners. I think the first thing we hear is this. Jesus was teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. So, even though a woman is healed, Jesus is interpreting God's word in a very dramatic and practical way. I think the most obvious things readers notice is... This woman has a chronic crippling condition, causing her to be bent over for a very long time. I think we might also assume everybody in her synagogue and town knew of her and her condition. What I noticed immediately is how Jesus healed her. He saw her, called her over to him, spoke words of healing to her, and then laid his hands on her. What's interesting to notice here is Jesus spoke healing to her before touching her, which would not have broke their Sabbath traditions. I'm sure the question many had in mind that day was, is this okay to do on the Sabbath? I've known this woman and seen her sickness for many years. Why today? I think we also need to remember that uh, Jesus is interpreting Torah and teaching them how to live it out here. It is not just a healing to prove Jesus is a miracle worker. Our listeners may notice the person who objects to the healing on the Sabbath is called the synagogue official, not a Pharisee or a scribe. In our English Bibles, what is translated as synagogue official or ruler is in Hebrew, Hazan. He was responsible for maintaining the building, organizing prayer services, and sometimes in smaller villages was the teacher of the synagogue school. He would announce the coming Sabbath with blasts on the shofar and cared for the Torah scrolls and brought them out at the appropriate times. I really like Jesus answers the objection of the Hazan by saying, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? What modern readers miss is Jesus is referring to the rabbinic principle known today as Za'ar Ba'alei Chaim. It means the prevention of suffering of living things. Regardless of the day of the week, like Pekua Nefesh, it is the obligation of humans to prevent the suffering of living things. From a practical position, this meant taking care of a person's domestic animals, such as leading them to water so they wouldn't go thirsty. This was permitted on the Sabbath. You know, even before Jesus came on the scene, uh, sages saw that the Torah contains many laws regarding the humane treatment of animals. 
For example, in Exodus 23, God actually instructs people to give their animals rest. He says, quote, Six days shall you do your task, and on the seventh day rest, in order that your ox and donkey shall rest. In Deuteronomy 25, God instructed that an ox that was threshing grain shouldn't be muzzled, the reason being so that he'd be able to eat while working. In Deuteronomy 22, people could take the eggs of birds out of a nest, but only after shooing the mother away. Also in Deuteronomy 22, if you saw that your neighbor's donkey or oxen had fallen down, you were to help it up. And in Genesis 9-4, God forbids the grisly and inhumane act of eating an animal while it is still alive. Jesus makes a similar appeal referring to the rabbinic principle Sa'ar Ba'ale Chaim in Matthew 12 that the Sabbath could be put aside to rescue livestock that fell into a pit, rather than waiting until the next day. Quote, If any of you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Wow. Did you notice how he uses the phrase, how much more? Jesus was using a classic method of rabbinic reasoning called, and I'll see if I can get this right, Kol Van Hamar. This was a commonly used teaching technique in the first century Israel, and by the way, it is still in use today. In Hebrew, it means light and heavy, or as we might say, little and big. It's used about 21 times in the New Testament, and according to the Oxford University Dictionary, Quote, it means that what applies in the less important case will certainly apply in the more important one. The phrase has come to mean an inescapable conclusion. Unquote. It's a teaching technique that helps teach principles from the Bible. If the little thing is true, how much more is the big thing? Often, when Jesus is telling a story or teaching a parable, he will say, How much more? To contrast a small thing with something greater that leads his listeners to a conclusion, one that you cannot escape. Now, you won't understand his point until you grasp the complete irony of the comparison. Let me give you an example. Quote, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Another one. Quote, But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Unquote. Jesus taught, if a lazy neighbor or an incompetent judge will respond to a person in need who begs for their help, how much more will a loving God answer our bold and persistent prayers? So the punchline is this. If we are to take care of animals' needs, giving them rest on the Sabbath, then how much more should we do for the people around us? Oh, the wow factor is huge once you understand how Jesus' audience heard his words. But wait, there's more. Jesus goes on to say, 
What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Then he gives his listeners two parables, by the way, which is a very common teaching technique in the first century. A parable was used to help the audience understand the rabbi's teaching. It was never used to hide truth. It was used to make the teaching clearer. The point was to get his listeners to see themselves in the parable and then make a decision how they were going to live. Parables are not allegory. Jesus gives the people attending synagogue two parables that day. Let's look briefly at each of them. Okay. In both parables, Jesus says this, quote, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall it be compared? So, what is the kingdom of God? How would Jesus' listeners have actually understood this? I think what most of our listeners may not understand is the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God were Hebraic idioms commonly used in the first century and is at the heart and center of most of Jesus' preaching. Understanding this uh, meaning is crucial to Jesus' teaching. Deborah, would you briefly explain for us how Jesus' listeners, his audience, would have understood the term kingdom of God? I'd love to. Understanding this is idiom that is used so often by Jesus has been huge in my understanding of God's word. First, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. It is not a place or a reference to the hereafter. In Hebrew, the word malchut shamayim, which translates into English simply as the rule of God, Joseph Franick gives such a wonderful description. Let me share it with you. This is what he said. The sages and rabbis were fond of talking about God in terms of his people enthroning him as king. But there is a distinction to be made between God's absolute sovereignty of the universe and those who have chosen to recognize that sovereignty and obey his will. The rabbis enjoyed talking about people of faith who had submitted their wills to God and were allowing him to reign in their lives. The kingdom of heaven is the present reality of God's redemptive power in the world today. And upon experiencing redemptive power, one's natural response is, Lord, what may I do for you? Which then translates into a life of good works. By emulating God, we extend a hand of friendship, assistance, redemption, and love to our broken, hurting world. So understanding these two parables as Jesus uses them during the synagogue service is the kicker. The subject is kingdom of God. And he wasn't talking about the next life. Jesus says this, quote, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree. Of course, then he gives his listeners a remez from Ezekiel 17, 23. And he says, quote, And the birds of the air nested in its branches. Of course, much has been made of this parable, but let's keep it simple. We need to ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God compared to? First of all, a man plants a seed, in this case, the seed of a mustard tree and not the kind of mustard we put on our hot dogs. And he planted it in his own garden. 
It can't be emphasized enough. The man is planting the seed in his own garden, and there is no indication he did so for the benefit of others. It's his garden, his seed, and eventually his tree. But the results of his planting is a tree which provides shade and relief for other creatures. Through his work, intentionally or not, others are affected and in this case benefit from his work. As a remez of Ezekiel 17.23, if one is in God's kingdom living according to his design and rule, their actions benefit and provide care for all creatures. I'd like to remind our listeners, a remez is a Hebrew word meaning hint or clue. It is a teaching technique that was commonly used by Jesus and other rabbis in the first century Israel and is still used today. A rabbi would give a brief quote from the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, in his teaching. But the powerful point of the teaching came not from the quote itself, but in the surrounding verses. So when Jesus refers to the Ezekiel passage, his listeners would have known the context of the remez. It's a contrast between the way men rule and the way God rules. In a nutshell, it's all about the failure of King Zedekiah, who, through his poor leadership, brought the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and suffering to the people. Jesus teaches in the kingdom of God, people bring shade and relief to others through how they live, something King Zedekiah failed to do. Now, in the second parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to leaven. I think all of us have heard time after time, leaven represents sin. But that's not completely accurate. It depends on the context. So why would Jesus use it to represent the kingdom of God? We all know or have heard a little leaven. Leaven's the whole loaf. It's a common phrase. In this case, leaven and bread are a good thing for food, health, and life. In fact, across the globe, bread is probably the single most important food eaten. The kingdom of heaven, then, is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Oh, oh, oh. at this point, we should immediately be asking ourselves, where have I heard this before? Does this remind me of an earlier story? You know, as he tells this parable, his listeners would have immediately recalled Abraham's wife, Sarah, because she did this very same thing when three men showed up at their tent door. In Genesis 18.6, she prepares the exact same amount of flour as Jesus uses in the parable. Three pecks, or in Hebrew, three siyas for their three guests. The strange part is three siyas is approximately 21 quarts of flour, and that is a lot of bread for three men to eat. It expresses great hospitality and generosity. Now, in the first century, uh, we have to remind everybody, people didn't go down to the grocery store and buy refined flour. They kept the harvested grain in containers, and when needed, they ground it and sifted it to make fine flour, and then the leavening process would begin, and normally that would take the entire day. The point is, in the parable, and in Abraham and Sarah's story, 
Three seos is a lot of flour, and it takes an equal amount of effort, which is a lot, to process into bread for people to eat. Like the small seeds of the mustard tree, just a little bit of leaven sown into flour makes bread, feeding a large amount of people. What is also interesting is the mustard seed that brings shade is also a reference to Abraham and Sarah. How, you might ask? Well, let's go back to Genesis 18. The three men show up, and Abraham tells his three guests to go rest themselves under the tree. Not his tent where he had been sitting when he saw them. He then instructs Sarah to prepare three sails of fine flour. Together, they prepare a large meal for their guest that provides shade, rest, and refreshment. I want to make it quite clear. Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God to both of these small acts and how through them they bring relief and benefit to others. It appears he is teaching that by doing small, seemingly unimportant daily tasks of kindness, they will grow and benefit others, like Abraham and Sarah, through whom the whole world has been blessed. When a complaint arose about healing on the Sabbath, he pointed out that people free their animals from their burden on the Sabbath. How much more valuable is a person created in God's image than an animal? In fact, this is something God continues to instruct his people throughout the Bible. It's part of what the kingdom of heaven is all about, to pay attention to the needs and welfare of others around us. There's no act of kindness too small which doesn't have the ability to affect large numbers of people. You know, if our listeners think uh, things are different these days, let's just consider this. We see endless commercials and TV shows highlighting and soliciting money for dog and cat rescue groups. Whatever happened to all those commercials raising support to feed, clothe, and educate children around the world? Or what do you think about bumper stickers that say, Dog Mom? Or, the more people I meet, the more I love my dog. At first glance, they seem funny. But what's happened to us as a nation? It seems that we care more about animals than we do people. People should be our highest and most important focus. Rules should never be more important than the reason behind them. Following God's instructions for life aren't a yoke of oppression. They are freedoms improving and having and enhancing the lives of God's creation. And as Jesus puts it, to bring an abundant life. Uh, something we should all remember. If Jesus is our Lord, we should be a reflection of his teachings. So go hide a little leaven in your flower or plant a tree that provides rest and relief to others. Well, it's time to wrap up this uh, podcast. Um, I believe the repeated theme of Jesus' teaching here is simply this. Doing good and bringing life to people is never bound by the day of the week or some law or custom. We must never forget God made the Sabbath for humanity. So what better way to acknowledge and worship God than to do good for others, especially when the need presents itself? For those of you who aren't familiar with the first century teaching technique called Ramez and would like further information and examples in 
Jesus teaching, we suggest you listen to our podcast titled Ramez, Hint or Clue, and then take the Ramez Challenge. In today's podcast, we briefly touched on the Hebraic idiom, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, The understanding of this first century term has been lost over the millennium. So when you begin to understand its use and how Jesus' audience would have understood it, I think your understanding of Jesus' message will be uh, revolutionized. Now we have a two-part series which will help you understand um, how his listeners would have understood this idiom. They're titled, What is the Kingdom of Heaven? And the second one, Righteousness Means Action. So check out our website, graftedbranches.org, where you will find podcasts, articles, and information on books written by reputable scholars, all to help you in your study of God's Word. Hey, drop us a note and let us know how these podcasts have helped you in your walk. Thank you for listening. Get to know Him, know what He taught, and then go out and live it. (laughs) And don't wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow.